podcast this week, we spend 20 minutes and 14 seconds, approximately, with Josh Hartnett, the numerologically obsessed star of 30 Days of Night, 40 Days and 40 Nights, Lucky Number Slevin, and now target number one. Plus, we get deep with Emily <laughs> Mortimer, star <laughs> of one of the year's best horror films, Relic. All that, plus the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that doesn't know why they don't just elect Tom Hanks and let that be the end of it. Unbelievable. Hey, yeah, right? We'd all be happy with that, wouldn't I we? I think we would, yeah. Everyone, there, Everyone's a winner if Tom Hanks is the president of the United States of America and fuck it, Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern oh, Ireland. God, as well. he's busy, Thanos. <laughs> no, James, we've had this discussion. Yes, Helen. Yes, Helen. <laughs> Make it happen. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Emperor Podcast. This week, due to a late dropout and what with this newly minted lockdown restricting our every single movement, I'm joined by just two colleagues of such lethal cunning, not three. Two, of course they are, as you've already heard, our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. How are you? Did you? I'm good. Did you mention Halloween H2O? No, I, I didn't mention Halloween H2O. Wow. You fucked that, didn't you? Well, I'm just saying because it's my initials, so I, you know, have warm and fuzzy feelings for it. Just saying if we're going to do a numerological Josh Hartnett yeah. intro, then that would have seemed an obvious, obvious way to go. Exactly. And you fucked it. Fucked it. Absolute disaster. All right. Yeah. Man, there's a, there's a, there's a. There's an elegant way out of this, mm-hmm. which is I just re-record the intro. Oh, what? Cut this bit <laughs> out, and no one notices. The inelegant way out of it is I just do this. Bangly bang on the Empire podcast this <laughs> oh week. God. We spend 20 minutes and 14 seconds, approximately, <laughs> with Josh Hartnett, the numerically obsessed star of 30 Days of Night, 40 Days and 40 Nights, Lucky Number Slevin, Halloween H2O, and now Boom. Target Number One. Plus, we get deep with Emily Mortimer, star of one of the year's best horror films, Relic. All that, plus the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that doesn't know why they don't just elect Tom Hanks and let that be the end of it, right? Mystifying. Mystifying. Weird. I mean, you know, Tom Hanks should definitely be the... And then the other bits that we did. Anyway, hello, Pod. I'm hang on. I'm in a loop now. I'm in a loop. I mean, this may be, we may be doing this for like we've 25 gone, hours. We've gone so meta at this point. I don't know what's being re-recorded or whether this is just part of the show at this stage. Oh, where was <laughs> is I? Is this a bit? I'm not clear. Right, we're in the show now. We're in the show. I've introduced Helen. Now I'm going to introduce you. Every week when we do something like this, I think this is going to be someone's first and last Empire podcast. We're going, these people don't even know what they're doing. This idiot's done the intro twice. <laughs> He's failed to introduce someone. What are they doing? Why would they possibly even win awards? Who knows? Anyway, so Helen O'Hara, Geek Queen, how are you? Very well, thank you. H2O. Thanks. And H, H. And uh, we're joined, of course, by our nerd twat, James Dyer. How are you? I, do, I don't like that I've been demoted. I'm, I'm, I feel well, this, then, is, this is... you shouldn't be a nerd twat. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Anyway, how are you both? And uh, how, how, are we, how are we coping? Because as we're recording this right now, uh, things are still fraught. We don't know what's happening over there on the other side of the pond. Do we? Mm. Or, I've been writing something for the last three hours. I have, I have no idea what's going on. Okay, good, good. Yeah, Any the other George is, course, Michael this singles? This will come out tomorrow, won't it? This yeah. will come out tomorrow. The pod will come out tomorrow. 
I think we should yes. prepare to cover our bases. So I personally would like to say that I am thrilled slash absolutely outraged by the result. Um, yes. Or <laughs> waiting for the result with hope or indeed pessimism. And uh, I, for one, could not be th more thrilled to welcome President Biden or more appalled by the continued reign of President Fuckwit. Wow. I think we've covered <laughs> off all eventualities there. Is, is President Fuckwit really... His name? Yeah. I don't know. Okay, uh, good. Yeah. yeah. I, I had to fact we check. We changed it legally to, for him. Yeah, I had yeah. to fact check, you know, because, you know, we have to provide, we have, we're fair and balanced here in the Empire podcast, and I, mm. I want to get all these things right, and I thought it was Trump, Trumpy, Trumpy man? No, but it's fuckwit. No, no, no. President it's, it's, fuckwit. It is okay. his given, fuckwit is his given name. It's given to him by okay. us. Well, we've lost world. that audience now anyway. Not sure we wanted them, <laughs> but anyway, hey, uh, which actor would you elect as president? I mean, I think Hanks would do a good job. Um, mm -hmm. Clooney would be a, a really good go-to um, because he's very passionately involved in global justice. So I think mm -hmm. that would be a good thing to have in the American president's office. Mm -hmm. Keanu, obviously, he could serve um, for life, which would be eternal because, as we all know, he's immortal. So <laughs> that could... Do you know what I mean? That would give a consistency, I feel like, uh, and that would be yeah. something to welcome. Uh, I, I, and and I don't want to just focus on the men either. I mean, Sigourney Weaver, is there anybody who wouldn't trust Sigourney Weaver with the presidency? No. Gina Davis has experience, of course, already from her TV show. Mm -hmm. You know, Meryl Streep. I mean. I mean, obviously the answer to this question is Martin Sheen, but carry on. Well, yeah, but like he's done it already, you know. So that was years ago. Martin Sheen, and if he's busy, Josh Brolin, but only in character. No, James, we've discussed no, this. We're, no, we're not letting Thanos be the President of the United States of America. Not again. <laughs> yeah, I think those are all good answers. Anyway, that wasn't a listener question. That was just something that popped oh, okay. into my head as I was uh, as I was putting a little intro together. Uh, because yes, folks, I do put that little intro together most weeks. At least 50% of the time. At least 50% of the time, the time. I come prepared. <laughs> anyway, um... Something that also happens most weeks on the Empire podcast is the three fact structure, which is the beloved section, yeah. um, beloved of everybody except James and Helen, that is in which James and Helen and the person in the rotating fourth chair gets to wow me with an obscure or arcane or unusual film fact in the hope that I won't already know it. Now... You would think because there's only two of you, we're not going to play it this week, but we are going to play it because the people have demanded it. I'm going to keep the magic alive by contributing the third fact myself. Now, I'm not in it to win it. I might be slightly biased towards my fact. My fact will only be an ornamental fact. Wow. Right. So the competition this week is between Helen and Jimbo. I don't have a fact yet. So I'm hoping... <laughs> That while but you two are James pontificating, is filibuster as usual. Yes, well, yeah. During James's seventeen-minute <laughs> filibuster, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to come up with something. You're going to say something that's going to trigger a fact. I'm going to look around the room. I'm going to find something. Anyway, who wants to have first crack at this week's three-fact structure? Sure. Hell's bells with enthusiasm. <laughs> so much enthusiasm. I have a fact about American Psycho, <laughs> uh, which I didn't previously know. Maybe it's well known. It's new to me. Brett Easton Ellis once wrote a, a script, uh, which is not surprising. He wrote the book. Of course he would. Uh, but he wrote a script for David Cronenberg, who in the early to mid-1990s was going to direct American Psycho with a yes. young up-and-comer called Brad Pitt. 
set to star in it. I, I don't know what happened to him. I guess he's probably gone on to a rich stage career or something. No, he's massively famous, Helen. He's one of oh. the biggest movie stars in the world. He just won an Oscar for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and he was oh. married to Jennifer Aniston and Angelina Jolie. You would probably oh. seen him in some stuff. I probably you have, know, I guess. I'm thinking uh, things like uh, Seven Years in Tibet. I'm thinking oh, things that, like... of course. Huge yeah. bits like that. Oh. Yeah. No, I feel stupid. Yeah, yeah. Johnny Swade. You know, the, <laughs> things like that. You might have seen him in things the like Mexican. that. The Mexican. Oh my God, the guy from <laughs> the Mexican? The guy from the Mexican. Oh, is that what he no, won the Oscar for? That's Just what he belatedly. won the Oscar for. Yeah, belatedly, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, David Cronenberg, Brad Pitt, Bratty Snell is writing the script uh, for American Psycho. Ellis uh, told Rolling Stone that uh, David Cronenberg was lovely, really, really lovely. He still likes him. But he hated shooting restaurant scenes and he hated shooting nightclub scenes and he didn't want to shoot any violence. <laughs> so he demanded that basically all of those be cut from the script. Right, um, good. Yeah, and, and he told uh, he told Ellis that he didn't he only wanted the script to be 65 to 70 pages because he says, you know, the usual rule of script writing is it's about a minute per page. So if you're making a 90 minute film, you have a 90 page script. Um, if you're the Gilmore Girls, you have 70 pages for a 45 minute show. But with Cronenberg, you have about 65 to 70 pages for a sort of hour and a half, two hour film because he only does about two minutes a page. Uh, yeah, it takes him two minutes to do a page. So he wanted this vastly shorter script with no nightclub scenes, restaurant scenes, and no violence. So I don't know. I, for one, would have been fascinated to see how that turned out. Yes, that would have been a much, much shorter film. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Maybe not. Potentially. You never know. Jimbo, what do you got for us? Four score and seven years ago. No, this, that's not how I'm going to begin. Uh, so I want to talk about something relevant. As you will have noticed on the news, obviously I can't speak to when people listen to this podcast, but certainly as we're recording it, America is in the toilet. So let's talk about toilets for a little while. And I want to talk about the film Psycho, which famously is the first American film to show a toilet flushing on screen, which is a fact a lot of people may know. It is also, many think, the first American film in which we hear a toilet being flushed because Americans were quite repressed in the 1950s. So apparently that second part is not true. So obviously in Psycho, around the sort of murder scene, spoiler, um, there is a toilet that we actually see being flushed, dispelling the myth that women do not poo. Now, uh, <laughs> Hitchcock what himself myth? is, of course, no stranger to toilets because in what all of myth? his films, he's flirted with the idea of having toilets on screen, but he's been very, very coy about it. So The Lodger, which is obviously 1927, that has mm -hmm. a scene set in a bathroom, but there's no toilet actually shown on screen. Uh, and in Murder, the um, Sir John Menier shaves, but he does not use the toilet. You do not see the toilet there either. The man who knew too much, there is a point where Bob Lawrence rushes into the hotel bathroom and we get to see the bath and the sink but there is no toilet in sight. However, however, in 1936, a secret agent, there's a hotel bathroom, and as they try and decipher the message in there, we see a toilet roll hanging mysteriously on the wall. So if someone wipes their ass, they just might not need to. However, however, there is a point later on where they wander into the bathroom, and we do get to see a toilet, but it is disguised by having a gramophone sat on it. So it is in disguise, presumably part of the secret agent plot. Now, I will say, this is really just preamble for me saying that while the first flushing toilet appears in Psycho, a little-known fact is that the sound, the first sound of a flushing toilet was not Psycho, but was, in fact, Grapes of Wrath in 1940. And that is my favorite. <laughs> is that what he was flushing down the toilet? The grapes of wrath? Yes, indeed. <laughs> what? <laughs> <I> was, uh... 
<laughs> Helen's like, where do I even start? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just literature, Chris, that you're flushing down the toilet. Damn, you know, no God damn it. I'm so angry with these grapes. I must flush them down the toilet immediately. Gah! Oh, boy. Is that, is that what happens in that, in that book? Uh, look, I don't want to spoil it for you, but no, that is not what happens in that book. Uh, I once in Empire headlined an interview with Eli Roth and called it The Mind Grapes of Roth. Wow. How did that go? Wow. It went really well. It went really, really well. Cool. I'm just buying time here while I come up with a fact. Did you know that Eli Roth has grapes in his mind? <laughs> did, you, did you know that's a real thing? That's a thing. Wow. You, should definitely, you should definitely go with that. All right. Here's one I'm going to go for. Hang on two seconds. Hey, Siri, tell me a fact yes. about movies. <laughs> Oh, hang on. Hang on. It's doing it. Here are some films. It's doing it. It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. <laughs> subsequent movie film. It's just listing films. Siri's gone rogue. Shut right, up, I'll, I'll Siri, try. I'll try. It. I'll try. Siri is the third person in this week's three fact structure, unless I can come up with something real quick. Hey, Siri. Oh, my God. She's dead. Hey, Siri. She's shunning you. She's watching the election results. Hey, Siri, tell me a movie fact. Here are some films. Oh, you it's idiot. It's The Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. No, you just, no. <laughs> she did the same thing to me. Once okay, you're going to have to look up a fact about the Charlie Brown and the Great Pumpkin. All right, okay, here Which, we go. Which, interestingly, has just been sold to Apple TV. Uh, this is true. And will not be on American kind of terrestrial TV for the first time in like 50 years at Halloween. And Apple has promised for the, at least the next few years to make it free and make the other seasonal Charlie Brown films free around their particular seasons. But it is the first time it won't be on kind of terrestrial American TV in decades. Well, wow. I don't know there why I read up an article about that, but I did. Anyway, so I think uh, that's two facts for me, none for Chris. <laughs> yes. Uh, did mine you know was literally a load of shit, so. <laughs> that the original sponsor of, uh, uh, what's it called? The Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, or Charlie Brown and the Great Pumpkin? Was Coca-Cola. Uh, and there, that is my fact. And that is something I knew uh, I knew all along. No, my fact was going to be that uh, when uh, George Romero died, George A. Romero died, he gave his watch to Tom Savini, his great friend, Tom Savini, who wears it on his, uh, wears, well, on his arm, presumably not anywhere else. That would be weird. Uh, as a reminder of his friend, George, he also has a tattoo of George uh, that simply says, it's got George's glasses on it and stay scared. Which was Aww. George's catchphrase. Aww. When uh, when I inevitably die of COVID, will you get a tattoo of me, like on your back or something? <laughs> Both of you, I think, out of solidarity. <laughs> Maybe we should have a patch right here, runner. Right Whoever um, dies first, the other two have to get their face tattooed on them. I'm absolutely not large. getting anyone's face on on me. No, <laughs> go full um, partridge. <laughs> maybe maybe a small infinity gauntlet for you. Yes. Um, Five stars, Attack of the Clones for me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, that's right. If I die first, you have, you both have to, you both have to swear it right now. Attack you of the have, Clones is a five-star film. You have to get my entire Attack of the Clones review tattooed <laughs> onto a prominent part of your body so that people can at least see part of it so it's a conversation starter. If you have it on your back, no one's going to see that apart from, you know, obviously, you know, sexy times and whatnot, or maybe uh, swimming baths, uh, perhaps. And, 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 who doesn't want to spark a conversation about Attack of the Clones in the middle of sexy times? <laughs> oh, wow. It's, it's, all I can, it's all I can think about. 
<laughs> it helps keep the wolf from the door, so to speak. Anyway, what? Oh, God. What? Oh, no. I mean, not yeah. being funny. In terms of mood killers, I'm saying your review of the coin has got to be up there somewhere. <laughs> but it's got Yoda with a lightsaber. Oh, my God. It's fun, funny, and thrilling, he says, using a variation on the same word twice in one sentence about <laughs> fucking hack I was. Anyway. Was still am. Anyway, that is it for the three fact structure. Shambolic as ever. I think I have to say that Helen is the winner this week because she came up with an impromptu fact about something I'd literally never heard of. Um, <laughs> as I was looking for a, a good fact about that thing. So, so well done, Helen. Jimbo, I'm afraid you're going to be flushed, mate. Just like the grapes of wrath. Fair enough. Okay, so we're going to go straight from the three-fact structure, another triumph for that one, uh, into <laughs> this week's listener question. And listen, guys, I'm trying to keep our minds off what's happening in the States right now. So, yes, thank you for all your favorite U.S. movie president questions or your what what movie set around Election Day would you like to see? They're great questions. And perhaps one day we will get round to them. But another time for now, instead, we're going to go from a question from Nick Keith, 86, who asks very, very simply, what is the best cinema experience and he goes on to list a whole ton of options recliners imax 40x outdoor small boutique cinemas or massive auditoriums public screenings or industry events what do you think what's what's the best if you had a choice what would you go for i mean it depends a little bit on the film so if it's a massive big uh you know opening night of like a huge movie then you you don't necessarily want the small boutique screening you you probably want the gigantic maybe the IMAX screen at the Empire in Leicester Square but one only with the, in the right seats. Oh yes. yeah, obviously you get there early. Yes. You know, you plan your day, you get there. Was it six hours early we got there once? Um, six hours. hours. Yeah. For that for that Star Wars one where it started at 9. Which Star Wars one? We oh, hang on, what do you mean the three. prequel ones? We did do, we, we so we had the early prequel ones where Sam used to queue for us, and we did that for, I think, Lord of the Rings as well. Yeah. But we queued for the recent Star Wars and Marvels. I remember there being a King Kong screening years ago at the Odeon Leicester Square. Oh my God, that was amazing. Yes. It started, I, I, I think the doors, it was a Sunday, so the doors it was a Sunday opened. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so doors opened, I hate those things. Uh, there's no fun in the foyer, because I'm a grumpy motherfucker from the minute <laughs> I, t- I turn up. I should still be in bed uh, watching yesterday's Saturday Kitchen. So we, it was like a nine o'clock, doors open nine o'clock, film starts at 10. Sam mm. was there from- I think it's six. So he could bag us the Queen's seats. So oh, crucially, so for King Kong. For King Kong. Hey. I it, mean, was a, it was a great experience, that screening. I still remember that screening. fine. Oh. <laughs> it was no Lord of the Rings, Helen. Well, no, I mean, but then what is? What is really? <laughs> so to, to explain, before the Odeon Leicester Square got refurbed and refitted, um, it's now one of those, it's, got, it's still lovely and it's got great seats and stuff, mm. but um, the Queen used to sit in the back, the best seats in the house are the upstairs balcony seats at the Odeon Leicester Square yeah. and uh, so you know so Queen front and row. Prince Philip can can stretch out front row and they can you know and they've got you know they're it's a bit more it's a bit more like a love seat so they can you know perhaps canoodle during the boring parts um, uh, and then she goes Philip what is that is that an attack of the clones oh, do you have tattooed on your back and he goes oh, yes it is <laughs> five stars fun funny and thrilling um, anyway those are the best seats so Sam mm. would queue up and and we would get those seats so they're the best ones we were there I think for um for Revenge of the Sith as well. Pretty sure. Yeah. I have to say, just jumping in, that was a pretty good Prince Philip 
I, I, was, I, and the reason that was the Queen. The reason I know this is <laughs> Tobias Menzies Prince Philip is not dissimilar. Because <laughs> uh, I've been watching The Crown season whatever it is this morning. Because I'm reviewing it on the Pilot TV podcast on Monday. So. <laughs> Season four. Is it four? I can't even remember. It is so. season four. Uh, the one you're watching right now yeah. is season yeah. four. It's the one with Gillian Anderson as Margaret Thatcher. I'm I'm just really struggling with that whole thing. I'm not sure I want to. I mean, I'm not sure how much uh, abuse my TV can take every time she's mm. on screen when I throw <laughs> things at it. So it's a she does it yeah. very well. It is conflicting, isn't it? But what were we talking about? Yes, best cinematic experience, which is not the fucking fourth season of The Crown. Jimbo, <laughs> Bell End. <laughs> What's your Jimbo? What is your favorite cinematic screening? Probably, you know, being massaged by Martin Sheen whilst watching the West Wing <laughs> on a projector. I mean, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, for me, for me, it's whatever doesn't get in the way of the film. So, mm. like, there was 40X can fuck off, quite frankly. Sorry, Cine World. <laughs> but I'm sorry. I have absolutely no patience for things which ultimately just distract you from the cinematic experience. Oh, no, it's a giggle if you've already seen the film, like, properly. Oh, sure, sure. Like, if you're just going there for... for you know, the squirts in the face and the whatever, whatever different kind of cinema. Well, you saw Gaspar Noe's Love as well. Again, <laughs> 40X was very upsetting. Um, but you know, it's the same problem I have with secret cinema. Like you go to secret cinema. Now, let, let me rephrase that. I don't have a problem with secret cinema. I love secret cinema, but I love it for the preamble. I love it for the foreplay. Once you get to the main event, <laughs> though, very it's sexual just distracting. <laughs> I enjoy I enjoy all that with Secret Cinema. I like all the fun stuff, but ultimately the film experience of Secret Cinema is you can't find the entrance. It's distracting. You, you, <laughs> it's just distracting. Like you can't really get into it because there's a lot of other stuff going on and people running in and out of room. And generally, in all of these situations, you don't want that. <laughs> people dressed up as Harrison Ford. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when I went to see Casino Royale and someone was driving an Aston Martin around in front of the screen and there were people playing poker and you're like. So I'm just trying to watch the fucking film. And this is absolutely true. We went to to uh, a, uh, the secret cinema of Empire Strikes Back and left. I literally left when the film started to go home and watch it at home because I was like, I really, I was doing a Star Wars watch through and I was up to Empire Strikes Back and I thought, I don't want to watch it with people running around in front of the screen with lightsabers and stormtrooper costumes. I just want to watch it properly. Because that's how big a nerd I am. Um, so when it comes to like uh, recliners and like big seats like that, that's lovely. But again, I feel like it can be distracting because you end mm. up putting your feet up and lying back and you get so... It's fucking you know, distracting. It's fucking distracting. Oh, it's so preoccupied. you. La-dee-da-dee-da. Lying back in your recliner. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I find watching films with Christian Bale also very distracting. <laughs> yes. Not great either. But uh, but generally, like you'll you'll be playing with the little you'll be playing with the knobs. You should never play I mean, with your knobs you, I, you while be watching while a film. The I'm saying on. that's no, you upon. should get into your yeah. reclined position before the film starts, and then you you take the position as it were, not in a Jasper no way sex way, and you just watch the film. Um, I agree though about recliners because like. If you think about something like, you know, I mean, let us it's been five minutes since we mentioned Marvel, so opening <laughs> night of Endgame, like, it was actually good that we were a little bit more packed into that cinema because it amped yeah. up the energy yeah. in the room mm. in I a agree, way Helen. that, you know, the new refurbished view with all the fancy mm. seats or the new refurbished Odeon with all the fancy seats wouldn't quite have had. Good for social distancing though, right? That's true. It is. That's true. Mm. It is. But my favourite cinema is the Empire Less Square and we all know my favourite seats, which are about... Mm, four or five rows depending on my mood from the back dead center basically i need my eye line to be in the top mm -hmm. third of the screen so i need i don't have to tilt my head up or down or left or right i can look straight up and just disappear into the film like that is the goal the whole point is to make reality fuck off so that you can just project yourself into the film without any distractions 
of any kind whatsoever. That, yes. that is the perfect cinematic experience. Agreed. Yes, I agree. Having said that, I would like to put in a word for boutique cinemas and so on, because they do offer really comfortable viewing experiences, really good size of mm. auditoriums. So there's enough people around you to get that cinema feeling for smaller films. Because if you were watching, you know, well, well, well the new Roy Anderson, which we'll be talking about later, in somewhere like the Empire Leicester Square, if they suddenly decided to put it on there, and there were six of you in that room, it wouldn't work. Mm. I'm Axel, get the fuck out. Well, yeah. That's what he I said. Mean, Roy Anderson, it says it. That's, <laughs> he does, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. He's yeah, well absolutely. known for saying, I'm Axel, get the yeah. fuck out. Yeah. It's him and Chris Christopher Nolan keeping the <laughs> IMAX experience alive. Um, but yeah, no, I, I feel like, you know, it, in that case, you want to be in the boutique cinema. You want to be in the smaller screen where there's enough of you to kind of feel each other, not in a sex way. <laughs> what is wrong with you this week, Helen? <laughs> what? I was just getting in ahead of your... Uh, that was an unfortunate choice of words. I was just trying to preempt your objection. Let me put it that okay. way. I do suffer from preemptory uh, ejections, it has to be said. I don't know. My my Avengers Endgame experience was slightly different to yours. I don't know if I mentioned that Oh, God, this before. here we go. Oh, God, here we go. <laughs> now, see, I know, but again, again, that would, I'd find that distracting as well. Like That is an inferior experience because there's external interference. Mm. Why is there external I. interference? The presence of cast and crew and celebrities, which are distracting from the experience of watching the film, whereas Helen and I had yeah. a pure experience where it was Optimal. just the film. Also, yeah. here's a question. Like, did you have great seats for that premiere or were those taken up by like yeah. important people? Yeah. Because we had great seats. Yeah. And sometimes when I've been to premieres, you know, because I'm not important, I'm put in the sort of, you know, bottom mm -hmm. quadrant quadrant on the yeah. right hand side, mm -hmm. like way down next to the screen. And you don't have as good a view or as good an experience. And I should point out that I famously walked out of an interview to go and queue for my endgame seats to ensure that I had the perfect seats. Yeah, but what's great is your interviewee got there not long after you did and had perfectly so fine true. seats. That is also true. Though mine were better, and I did point that out by shouting to him across the auditorium to mention that I had better seats because wow. I am, in fact, a nerd twat, as we established yes, at the top of the show. Yes, there you go. Yeah, self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, no, were my Avengers Endgame seats great? No, they weren't great, but I would argue that any seat pointed towards Avengers Endgame is, by definition, Fair. great. Uh, they were they were they were fine. I was in the same section as the likes of Jeffrey Wright and David Dasmalkian, so I wasn't in with the you know the the dregs and the no hoppers and the hangers <laughs> on. I was in with you know with huge pillars of the mm. MCU. Kurt from Ant Man and um, Jeffrey Wright is playing the Watcher, isn't he? So yeah, there you, know, you go. And we're better to seat the Watcher than somewhere you can watch the film. So they did that. Uh, was I next to Chris Pratt? No. Did my wife have a better seat than I did? Yes. <laughs> Is it a bone of contention? Yes. But that's fine. We move on. Uh, I'm also going to go for, I'm all in on recliners. Oh my God, mm. I'm all in on recliners. They're, they're, those things are incredible. And they're not really something that, that happened over here until a few. And then recently the Odeon started moving in with their Lux brand and few West End got rebranded. And the first time I experienced one of the recliners over here was, and this might be why I'm slightly higher in this movie than most, the Equalizer 2. And guys... I got to the front row of that. I racked my seat back as far as it would go. I had a whole bag of crispy M&Ms. I had a cup of Sprite Zero. I was in hog heaven. I watched Denzel kick the shit out of some bad guys. It was tremendous. <laughs> Highly recommend. Would do it again. If you give me a recliner, I will like your movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. The studios could be listening, Chris. You've given them the secrets. 
Oh my goodness, oh no. what? Oh no, these are my demands that they're not meant to be next yeah. week. A recliner and or Yoda with a lightsaber. This is That's like, I mean, this is is. like the, old, the old saw, which used to be true when, when studios had money, um, that the better the catering at the screening, the worse the film. I remember <laughs> I a remember particularly that. lavish spread ahead of the movie Gulliver's Travels, the Jack Black version. And yeah. uh, and sure enough, the, the maxim held in that case. Uh, but it was fantastic anyway, because just like there was so much food it was really really tasty but yeah that that's that's the the before times i, I don't think that's necessarily true before times <laughs> before the dark times before the lockdown <laughs> um i um i do think there is something to be said for you know we talk about best but it is more about different isn't it like every mm. cinema has a distinct flavor which maybe suits a different film slightly better like i love going to the picture house central because you know there's a certain vibe to it, a certain feel mm. from whether it's the number of seats the layout of the seats they're particularly comfy seats but also the, the sort of the clientele if you will like there's a certain you know audience that you get there which fits a certain type of film whereas equally you know if you're going to watch like a horror movie or a comedy or a comedy you do want a massive multiplex full mm. of families and all sorts of different people there and so i think it massively can alter you know your appreciation of film and and how much you enjoy it. So there's a place for all these things you know your screen on the greens your every man there's places yeah. for all of these different things your local you know independent chain cinema like it's not all about mm. you know and i genuinely wouldn't want to watch a lot of films in imax i really wouldn't like you know it's i don't think it's always the optimum way to do it unless you're watching a film that, that you know that's enhanced by that so mm. uh yes go to all cinemas all different flavors when they open again yes when they open again <laughs> Yeah, don't do and it And I now. do think that you are right, though, that a recliner can make a, a bad film bearable. Yes, absolutely. Uh, final question. I'm just going to do real quick, multiple choice, both of you. Don't think okay. about it, just said. Public screenings or private screenings? Private. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to Except be Except for horror or comedy. Yeah, I'm going to be elitist and say the rest. Just because you don't have anybody using their phones. That's the or big, munching, big thing. Or talking. Or kicking. Or talking. Or... You know, leaving adverts or adverts. Yeah, you just I time. I always get there after the adverts are gone. I, t- I time it. I go I look at the start time and I go right Add 20, 20 minutes, minutes from that point. Yeah. I just walk in, and most of the time I arrive halfway through the film, but it's fine. IMAX or 40x? IMAX. IMAX. 40x. We've already established my feelings yeah. on 40x. Yeah, it's it's fine for like a fourth or a fifth or a seventh viewing of like yeah. let's say an Avengers mm-hmm. movie um, or Fast and Furious, but not for the first time. Small boutique cinema or massive auditorium? Depends on the film. Depends on the film. Yeah. Nah, chickens. If I had to pick one, I'd go. I'd go large, but that kind of maybe speaks to the kind of films that I prefer. All right. I want to see. You haven't experienced the West Wing until you've seen it in massive IMAX. <laughs> in the wrong aspect ratio. Yeah. <laughs> recliners or normal seats? Recliners. Normal. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Too distracting. That's Unless interesting. it's a shit film, in which case recline me and I will just sleep through it and that'd be fabulous. <laughs> but if I'm watching like Endgame, I don't want to be reclined. I want to be sitting bolt upright, paying attention, staring at the screen. Yes. <laughs> With one of those clockwork orange things, Sion, where you get your eyes <laughs> yes. just popped open. 100%. But for those big movies, I do I do reiterate my point about it. I, I would rather be more squished in and not have recliners for the giant, giant movies. Okay. Two last uh, multiple choice questions. Crispy M&M's or normal M&M's? Crispy. Normal. Oh, Helen's correct. James, you're a monster. <laughs> and the last one, very important. David Dasmalkin or Jeffrey Wright? Jeffrey Wright. Oh, David Dasmalkin. 
Well, uh, that was an epic listener question. I hope it answered Nick Keith86's question to his satisfaction. If you want to have your question read out in the Ever podcast, you can get in touch with us via, well, there's really only one method in town right now, which is Twitter. You can either just reply to one of my tweets on the Twitter machines, or you can slide into my DMs, or you can, as Nick Keith86 did, just ask us a question. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast, and that really does help it stand out. Okay, time now for this week's first guest. I've already mentioned that Josh Hartnett is the star of 30 Days a Night, 40 Days and 40 Nights, Lucky Number 11, Halloween H2O, and now Target Number 1, in which he plays a real-life journalist who gets caught up in a Canadian citizen's battle for justice after being wrongly arrested in Thailand. So add that all together, 30 plus 40 is 70, 20s, 90s, and 91, 91 plus 11. So he has 90, what is 11? He has between 91, 98, and 101 in terms of his movie numbers, movie title numbers, right? Can any actor beat that? Can any actor go higher than Josh Hartnett in terms of the numbers in the titles of their movies adding up? We're going to answer that pretty much in the news section in a minute. You realise that, right? We are? Yeah. How are well, we? Well, one of them. One possible answer that's higher I, than his. I'm very excited. Very excited okay. to find out who that might be. Uh, but anyway, yes, Josh Hartnett. And so he is a really interesting uh, actor. He burst onto the scene as a teen heartthrob all those years ago in the likes of Halloween H2O and The Faculty and moved on to you know, big blockbusters like Black Hawk Down and Pearl Harbor, then retreated from the scene for a while, made a whole bunch of indie stuff, came back with Penny Dreadful a few years ago on the small screen. And now he is making smaller, independently minded movies like Target Number 1, which is out this week on digital HD. Wherever you buy your digital movies, you can find Target Number 1. And he now lives in England. And uh, so I caught up with him over the Dread Zoom uh, a couple of months ago to have a chat about Target Number 1 and about his career and a great many things besides. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast in lockdown, of course, by the star of Target number one, Mr. Josh Hartnett. How are you, sir? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Oh, you know, can't complain. <laughs> if Good. I could, I'd take up my 20-minute slot <laughs> if, I, if I started complaining. <laughs> right. You do yeah, not well, want to hear me complain, Josh. I can listen. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. You can just lay back no, no, on no, the couch. The, and, the yeah. whole point of this is that you talk oh. and I listen. That's how these is things that work. That's oh, apparently God, how these things work. Who knows? Who knows? I've but maybe we can like pioneer something new. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. Um, but how's lockdown been for you? Well, lockdown was was uh, fairly, fairly intense. Uh, we have three kids and we were uh, chasing them around uh, ad nauseum. It was a <laughs> lot. Uh, it was it, it was it was unexpected uh, how kind of close we became as a family over the course mm -hmm. of uh, the few months. And then I had to go away to work. And so I went back and finished a film that I was starting just at the beginning of lockdown. Um, and that's actually a four part series for HBO. That's it will come out here, I think on Sky Atlantic and it's a Raul Peck film called exterminate all the brutes. And, um, and we were shooting that in the Dominican Republic and we were literally about to start filming on a Monday. And we were told by the government, we had to leave by Monday night or we were going to be stuck in the, 
FDR until they decided to unlock the borders. And we didn't know when that would be. So we quick got on planes and flew back. And and, uh, since then, I've been I was here. And then we went back and we were able to shoot it again in France, uh, bizarrely. But that's where Raul lives. So we we finished that uh, this summer. How's that been? Because uh, I imagine they're not, not, there's not a lot of people who are filming stuff at the moment in the middle of this. Oddly enough, these huge movies are happening where there's hundreds of people on set, where the smaller films are kind of just starting to kind of get going. But you would th- it's a lot easier, I think, to kind of work on a smaller film in, this, in these conditions because, uh, I mean, everyone has to be tested and people have to stay apart. And when there are fewer people, there's there's a better chance of that happening and also a better chance of people, you know, maybe staying in on the weekends as opposed to going out, which is, (laughs) which has been an issue, I think for some of these productions. Um, But it was, it was different, same level of kind of uh, filmmaking when you're in front of the camera, but it was everything off camera was entirely different. Everybody's covered up. Everybody's keeping their distance. Mm -hmm. People aren't doing it. There's not a lot of small talk. And then you go back to your hotel and you sit in the hotel because you're supposed to be quarantined when you're offset. So it's either the hotel or, or, or the workplace. So it's, it's a different, different style of filmmaking for sure. Uh, is that different from your normal process on movies or when you're on films, you have this, uh, you have this opportunity, which is one of the great things about making films. So you have this opportunity to explore the place that you're working in, especially, mm. you know, if it's far flung and, and there's, just none of that happening at the moment. <laughs> Small price to pay, I guess. But on this movie, uh, Target Number One, yes, which when you signed on to it was called Gut Instinct, and it's also yes. been called, I believe, Most Wanted in the States. So is it difficult for you to keep track of the different name changes, first of all? Well, luckily, they looked for the most generic name possible for the American <laughs> market. And uh, so that one's easy to remember. Um, no, I it, it originally was called Gut Instinct because it was based off the book that, that Victor Mallard wrote, the same name. Yeah. And that, I think, is a, is a great title for the, for yeah. the movie. Um, I don't know why they changed titles. It happens a lot. I don't, sometimes it's just, you know, it's the purview of uh, marketing people that believe they're, you know, smarter than the director. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but in this, in this situation, I know that they, uh, there, was some, uh, there was some issue with gut instinct uh, as far as copyright went in Canada or something. Okay. The title is not the point of the movie. The, the, the point of the movie is obviously that you play a real life journalist and not yes. a journalist like me. You know, I'm a film journalist, Josh. I just sit in my backside all day, watch movies and write about them. Movie about me wouldn't be very interesting, but this guy, well, maybe it would, I don't know. But, but this like guy, Victor, it, it, honestly, you should try it. Uh, Victor Malarek is an investigative journalist. He, he gets out there, he puts himself about and uh, often incurs the wrath of the wrong type of people. And that, that seems like a fascinating character to, to get your, your teeth into. Yeah, I mean, I think that Victor is uh, the reason. The reason that I signed on to the film to begin with was that I read the read the script, loved the story. Obviously, uh, met the director, felt like he was going to tell a really great story. But Victor himself, when I was able to go meet him in Toronto about five and a half years ago, when I first signed on to this, mm. he gave me a sort of insight into the character that uh, that felt fresh because he he grew up. In, in and out of foster care, he was in a lot of uh, uh, homes for boys that were, uh, that were not necessarily nice places to grow up in and developed this tendency uh, and ability to fight bullies where, you know, wherever they kind of reared their heads. And it was, and it became his life's 
work, you know, and that's how he operates as a journalist. Like he, he looks for somebody who's being, uh, who's being subjected to kind of unfair conditions by people that are superior and he, mm. and he writes about it and he won't stop writing about it or he won't stop investigating it till he kind of figures out, you know, how to change the situation. He is the definition of a crusading journalist. And I, I, at the same, I found that his, his personal experience lent him that sort of that intensity and that drive that I, I felt was really integral to the, to the character. Mm. And you also said something interesting there, which is that you signed on this movie five and a half years ago. So yeah. you stuck with it through thick and thin, whilst I imagine all kinds of funding shenanigans were going on, trying to get the money to get this thing made. Um, and you've done this before in your career, you know. but I believe you signed on to La Black Dahlia, for example, about five years before that got made. So mm-hmm. is that indicative of the type of person you are that once you sign on to a project, you you you're like a, you get your teeth in it and you just hold on until <laughs> until it comes before cameras. My teeth, yeah, exactly. Uh, I I think that it's it's more in when I find somebody who's really passionate about the story that they're telling, I want to I want to I want to support them and I also want I really want to work with them. And and mm-hmm. so uh, Daniel had been working on this for 10 years before it got made. And I knew that when he, when he, when he, when he was able to make it, he would have, you know, every idea in place for what he, what needed to be done. And he didn't need a gigantic budget to do it, even though it's a big story with a big, you know, with big scope, with a lot of, uh, locations. And he somehow, you know, not somehow through just diligence and, and hard work was able to kind of, focus those uh, small amount of funds into uh, kind of a, a, a big film, make, create, mm-hmm. a, create a big film out of it. And I, I knew that he was going to be able to do that the moment I met him. And uh, just in the way that we interacted, I just saw the passion. And so when you meet someone like that, it's more that you're betting on them. And, and so I was going to stick with him. And if I was going to help him get funding together by being a part of it, I was going to, I was going to, I was going to do it, you know, and, and, and that happens, that happens occasionally in, in, in filmmaking where, yeah. you know, you, you can be helpful to the filmmaker. And it, it seems also that, uh, you know, throughout your career, since the, since the beginning anyway, you know, you made big films back in the, the first few years of your career, but it seems that over the last few years, uh, perhaps Penny Dreadful aside, that this is a sort of movie that you seem more comfortable making smaller movies with filmmakers who have stories, maybe personal or otherwise that otherwise might struggle to get made. Yeah, I I'm more I respond to films that are um are about something personal to the director that mm. that might not be made otherwise if that person wasn't as passionate about it. So I usually material that isn't so so ubiquitous at the time, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I uh, you know, you read if you read thirty scripts and twenty of them are horror, horror films this year. This year, because there's a lot of horror films made, you don't really want to just go make another horror film. You want to find something that's a bit different. And at the time when I read the script, there weren't a lot of films like this being made. These mid, mm. you know, mid-range, as far as budget goes, films about uh, a real-life incident that it, that has an effect on the culture and and also the story that. When I when I read this, I couldn't believe that it existed, and I'd never heard of it before. And also, the the third thing on top of that, what 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 struck me most was that this could happen in Canada. Um, the fact that 
something of this magnitude could happen in your backyard. It could happen anywhere where it's, it's not expected to happen. It's not something that's, that's, that strictly happens mm-hmm. in Washington, DC. It can happen anywhere. I found, I found it compelling and there aren't that many times in your career where you're able to kind of be a part of a film that, um, that, you see from inception and a very small sort of uh, small beginnings sort of come up and, and, and find an audience uh, on a massive scale. And I, I mean, not massive, it's, this isn't, you know, uh, Avengers, mm. but it's, but it's getting mm. a lot of, a lot of eyeballs. And I, I find that immensely rewarding. There's something about like maybe the gambler in me that kind of responds to that. <laughs> Has that gambler in you been present from, from the off? Probably. Yeah. I'm guessing so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I, giving you an, giving you an example. Um, I was, I mean, Virgin Suicides was the first independent film, independent film that I did. And I was sort of spoiled on that film because I saw Sophia uh, being a first time filmmaker, having written the script as a spec, even though it was already owned by someone else. And the script had been written and she had no right to be there, no, no right to make the film. And yet wrote this script because she was passionate about the material, was able to get the budget, was able to make a great film. And so my idea of filmmaking is that like that can be done. And so I'm always sort of looking for that experience. And that is Mm. a gamble every time. I mean, it's a gamble with your time. You know, it's a, it's a gamble with, it's a gamble as an artist. And I just really find that uh, exciting. Yeah, you mentioned horror films there, and you started off with a couple of of doozies. You started off with Halloween H two O or H twenty. I always call it H two O, but H twenty. Uh, and The Faculty, which is mm-hmm. a film I I absolutely adore. But with those experiences with with you know Steve Miner and with 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 uh, Robert Rodriguez, were they different from the one that you had with Sophia on the first and Suicides? Well, bizarrely, I didn't know what filmmaking was. Not bizarrely, I just didn't know what filmmaking was yet. They were my first two films, so I was. Mm. Um, I, I was enamored with the, the process of making those films equally, uh, uh, but I didn't, I hadn't made a film that was so, um, uh, well, let me, let me put it this way. It was, those two are not of a kind, like Halloween H2O was very much uh, part of a franchise that they had a lot of eyeballs on. They thought was going to make a lot of money. And so they were careful about how they were presenting everything. And there was a, it was a pretty big budget for, for that mm. type of film. And it was uh, put together by, um, uh, by Jamie. Was, Jamie had a big part in casting, and and the, and and Steve Miner had a you know had already established himself in that arena, and they had sort of created something that they felt was sort of bulletproof, and they were going to make it. It was going to and it was going to achieve an audience, and that was going to happen. And so, being a mm-hmm. part of it felt like you're part of something preordained. Robert's totally different. Robert's sort of off the cuff anyway, in the way that he, with he makes films and he makes them with a small group of people and much more in an independent style. Um, and so I, that film felt more independent to me because it wasn't, yeah. there were executives that showed up, but it was mostly Robert just with the people that he knew and trusted. And Robert does a lot of the stuff himself anyway. So it was he, him behind the camera and him, you know, doing the editing and him doing the music and like that's, and then also directing. And so it's like a, 
it, it felt more independent in nature in that way. And this crew was smaller and more just a group of friends, but on Virgin Suicides, it was just friends. You know, Sophia had mm. gathered people that she knew and trusted friends doing the wardrobe, friends doing the, you know, friend, friend, a friend who was a DP, all these people. And they were tiny <laughs> and it was tiny. It was like, it was, it was a little tiny group of people and, you know, people who weren't in the, the lighting department would be moving lights. You know, it was just, it felt, it, it felt like a group of friends let's go make a film, you know, and that mm. was exciting. I read that Sophia actually still has the wig you wore in that movie. That's upsetting, but I'm glad <laughs> in a way. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't, you didn't hang on to it yourself. You didn't grab it once filming finished. I don't think I was listening to my to. wall. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> <Come on. laughs> uh, I think it was, you know, it's, it's hopefully one day going to end up in some very important museum. I it's, it's no, it's, God, why would you want that? Honestly, like, what are you going to do with that? That's not, well, where's she, where she going to put it? Is it in the hallway as people walk in? Where does Who she knows? have it now? No, I was 19 years old when we made that film. And uh, so it's 22 years ago, 23 years ago. And I, you know, she gave me a bottle of wine. We were in Canada. I turned 20 while we were on the film at the very end of filming. And she gave me a bottle of wine and she wrote, you're not a teen heartthrob anymore on it because... <laughs> You know, and uh, I still have that bottle of wine, so maybe I can trade her that bottle of wine for the wig at some point. You haven't opened the wine, well, why would you? Why would you? No, no, it's a, it's you know, it's uh, she wrote me a little note on it. It's a, it's a collector's yeah. piece. But that's that's uh, that's also focus on the future as well. I've I've read some interviews with you in which you said that you've been writing screenplays for a while, actually. Now, yeah. Any chance we might see one of those screenplays? Ideally, yes. Uh, it's it's just got. It comes down to. I mean, when I first wrote a screenplay, it was 2002, and we sold it to DreamWorks, and it sat on a very important shelf there for a while, and then it, it went away. You know, it was reverted back, and it never. Nothing ever happened with it, and I didn't want that to ever happen again. So I've written a few other things, and we've taken one other thing to market, but it was a very very big show. It was a TV show, and. They didn't trust me as the creator of this show who's never done a show before with that sort of a budget range. And so we've been trying to figure out ways to sort of like uh, shore that up uh, and uh, like maybe making a podcast or maybe doing a, a, a graphic novel or something to sort of help get people interested in it before we actually take it back to market. Now that that's another thing. And then films, I've written a few films that every one of them has the intention has been for me to direct them eventually. And mm -hmm. it's about two years of your life to take a film from, from having written it to, 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 to release. And I just need to, first of all, I need people who are like-minded and want me to make it. Uh, and we've, we've discussed that with a few people. Um, but then also just need the, I need the time and I have, you know, three young kids and, and uh, I like acting still and uh, I'm getting offers and, you know, I've got, it's, it's just a time. It, it, I will have to take a real break in order to make that happen. Okay. But it is a, it is a possibility in the future. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's a, it's yeah. an ambition that I would love to fulfill for sure. Do you find that, you know, you've had this all the way through your career, as, as you say, when Sophia writes on that uh, bottle of wine, you're, you're no longer a teen heartthrob that you had that in the early part of your career where you guess people had pigeonholed you as one thing and you mm -hmm. went no 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 I'm a, I'm a serious actor and I want to do serious projects as well it maybe took a little while to 
convince people of that. And now also now you're Josh Hartnett actor, but you also want to be Josh Hartnett writer, director, maybe even a showrunner. And people are going, hang on, get back in your box, Hartnett. We've right. we've put you over here. Well, I guess I'm not. Yeah, I mean, I not, I don't know if people uh, these days. It seems like a lot of people, uh, a lot of actors have been able to uh, create material that has been successful. Uh, that isn't, you know, necessarily what they're known for. I'm thinking of Jason Bateman did it with Ozark. You know, he was yep. he had a big hand in in creating that and uh, and producing it. And I there are a lot of actors that are doing similar sort of things. I don't think it's as much, it makes that much of a difference anymore. I don't think there's anybody yeah. trying to hold me back. I think it's just purely about me, me being able to uh, marry the right piece of material with the right production partners, essentially. Mm. I think. We'll see. Josh, I'm glad to go, but it's been an absolute pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was Josh Hartnett, and we will be talking about target number one later in the show. But we're going to dig deep now into the week's movie news and we're going to start off with the the death of Sean Connery who passed away last week suffering from dementia at the age of 90. Now weirdly we did a long segment on Sean Connery's movies and I think it was his best non-Bond performances Mm -hmm. a few weeks ago so I'm not entirely sure what we can say here that we didn't already say there that as a as an actor and a movie star he was one of the greats off screen perhaps not quite so much he held views and had instances of domestic violence in his life that were deplorable and should be absolutely condemned but we are going to focus on assessing the man's work and impact on cinema here. You may feel strongly about that. You may feel otherwise. I've always said your mileage may vary and we totally get and respect that. But Helen, mm. where do you stand on the career of Sean Connery? Yeah, I mean, look, without wishing to lionise him or overlook, you know, significant, obviously, shortcomings, <laughs> as you mentioned, Um he was still one of the movie stars who starred in so many of my favorite films growing up and was a, just a huge uh, figure in in film through the years. And I'm not even particularly talking about his bond. Like I know I'm I'm sure you guys no, will yeah, in a moment. Yeah. Um but for me he was, you know, he was Highlander, he was The Untouchables, he was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, he was Hunt for Red October. I mean The Rock, I, these are movies that are absolutely in my all-time favorites. And and he was a key part and a and a fantastic part of every single one of them. I mean, never mind stuff like you know the name of the rose or Robin and Marion and all of mm. his other stuff. I I I just like those ones in particular are absolute ride or die films for me. So uh, so yeah, it, it does feel like a loss. I mean, obviously he'd been retired since uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and obviously in failing health for the past few years. So it didn't come as a shock, but it still kind of did just because it kind of felt like he'd be there, be there forever. He'd been playing older men since the what mid 80s, or maybe even earlier. And so you earlier. just kind of felt like he'd always be around as an old man mm. and could maybe one day come back to the screen. Yeah, Robin and Marion for example trades mm. on the idea that he <laughs> it's weird. There's a point where his bond goes from looking like a bloke in his late 30s to a bloke in his early 70s and it happens <laughs> almost overnight. If you look at, you know, the, you know, he looks demonstrably older, for example, in Diamonds Are Forever, and there is a slight gap between 
you only live twice and diamonds are forever for him. But <laughs> suddenly, you know, I don't know whether it's a different wig <laughs> or whatever, but he suddenly just seemed to age overnight. But he aged really well in that really way well. that, you know, I am absolutely not. And <laughs> um, and uh, he he did look like an elder statesman. Someone said, I think the other day that uh, there was a picture of him from the late 70s. Somewhere in the late 70s, Sean Connery decided to look like he was 58 forever and stayed that way until he retired. Uh, I think that's pretty much Mm -hmm. on the money. Um, And yeah, listen, if we're focusing on the movies and we're focusing on the work and we're focusing on the performances, uh, then absolutely. I think he's one of the greatest movie stars of all time. I think he is a much underrated actor as well. He absolutely deserved his Oscar for The Untouchables. Mm -hmm. Um, What he did with Bond, the template that he set with Bond, is incredible, you know, but he was also a very interesting actor in the terms of the risks he took. And quite often that would lead to an awful lot of terrible schlock. But he also took risks as an actor and he would work with Hitchcock and Marnie. It's a lesser Hitchcock, I think, mm. but he would work with the likes of Sidney Lumet over and over again. If you've never seen the early ones he did with Lumet, uh, The Hill and The Offence, The Hill is a movie he made when he was Bond and he was actively even then trying to break out of mm. the Bond typecasting uh, and it's a really br- brutal performance and a really brutal film. Uh, the offence came later as well. But in the 70s, yeah, the 70s was fairly patchy for him as well, but it was also great stuff. The Man Who Would Be King is a, mm. is an all-time great uh, movie as well. Robin and Marion is a fantastic film. And in the 80s, yeah, there's a lot of terrible films in the 80s, but as <laughs> Helen mentioned, my God, I mean, Highlander, Name of the Rose, Untouchables, my God, Untouchables. Untouchables, I mean... Uh, and Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, in which, oh. despite being only 12 years older than Harrison Ford, he uh, convincingly portrayed his father mm. and played against type. And it's one of my favourite performances, one of my favourite films. And Outland um, and Time Bandits as well in the 80s. Oh my so, God. I mean, Outland, Time Bandits, Sardoz. We haven't even mentioned <laughs> the red nappy in Sardoz. That was 70s, right? That was 70s. It was. <laughs> it was. What a film. Uh, and there was, you know, he, he was a brusque guy. I interviewed him once. I had a decent time with him. I, I had a. Uh, uh, I was nervous as hell. This is years and years ago when he was a patron for the Edinburgh Film Festival. And I interviewed him by phone for Empire. And we got on quite well. You know, it wasn't a career interview. It was a career about Edinburgh and about the film festival and what that meant to him. So we weren't really getting into Bond and Untouchables and Indiana Jones and retirement and all that sort of stuff. But we got on quite well. We, you know, we, 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 you know, I talked about, you know, oh, I'm from. I'm from Northern Ireland, and, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not too similar, so you and I, Sean, you know, <laughs> we're from similar backgrounds. And uh, so we talked a little bit about, about that. And uh, towards the end of the, the interview, as my time came up, I went, uh, Sean, I've had a really great time talking to you. And, uh, you know, there's obviously so much to get into in your career. And I would love to talk to you again. I was just wondering if you would be interested in, in having another interview with me and we could really get into your career. And there's a pause on the phone and he goes, oh. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, on one hand, that's a burn, right? On the other hand, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of perfect. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he's been so personable, so friendly. He's like, and then suddenly, no, I've had enough of this shit. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm going to play golf now, young man. I interviewed uh, Sean Connery in 2003 uh, at the premiere of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. You're the one who said, retire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so we've always said it was the film that caused him to retire, but actually it was meeting me on the red carpet of that film. Well, I've peaked. <laughs> That's it. That's it. He was like, I can achieve no more. Um, but it's funny, isn't it? He's been gone, and I mean, not dead gone, but he's been, you know, he's been off making new films, he's been off the screen essentially for the better part of 20 years, and it doesn't feel like he's ever been no. away. Like, it, it just doesn't, like, because his films are such a part of the fabric of cinema and such a part of my go-to films that I watch all the time. I mean, we've, we've talked about so many of them already, but, you know, Highlander, The Untouchables, all of these films, The Rock, oh my God, The Rock, even First Night and Rising Sun are kind of on my, <laughs> I quite like to revisit these from time to time hey, films. Hey, I'm going to stand up for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, so, you know. <laughs> yes, yes, his cameo at the end of King Richard <laughs> is extraordinary. But I, 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 he's he, for me, is cinema. But, you know, I'm joking, but there is an element of that. Like, mm. if, if you would say to me, like, who do I think is the most iconic person to me in cinema? Like, he is circling the number one spot. Like, you know, in terms of the roles he's done, the way he's portrayed them, how iconic he is on screen and his performances are. And of course, the voice. You know, there's no mm. voice like his voice. You know, him and Arnold, the two most impersonated, you know, screen actors in history, I would say. And I would dispute that. <laughs> I think there's a third. Unless you're Chris, in which case it's Michael Caine and Danny Boyle. But, um, <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like it's it's incredible. And and as we said, like he he had certainly he was a problematic character off screen, and some of his views are just horrific. But taken as a screen presence, taken for his roles on screen, you know he, he you know we shall not see his like again. Mm. And I mean, we haven't even mentioned Darby O'Gill and the Little People, which is wow. pretty much the definitive leprechaun <laughs> movie. We're shaving the best for last. Because <laughs> he perfected the Irish accent in that, didn't he? And then he brought it out for the Untouchables. Sure. Yeah, that's what he did, all right. And then he brought it out for his Ukrainian role in Hunt for Red October. <laughs> I, I, we've said this before, but I have an enduring respect for a man who makes absolutely no effort to change his accent <laughs> at any point, even when he's playing an Egyptian Spaniard immortal. Or a French-raised British king. <laughs> yes. There is one question with Sean Connery that we, I don't think has ever been addressed. Was he simply not trying to do accents, or did he think he was doing the accents <laughs> and was just terrible at them? <laughs> I mean, I guess it depends how much benefit of the doubt you well, want to give him, but... I don't think he was, I don't think he tried. I think, you know, what you saw is what you got. He turned up, he did his thing, and he did it with his accent. So We sail into history. Uh, Sean, that was great, but could you do it as a, in your Ukrainian accent? What the fuck are you talking about? That was my Ukrainian accent, you bastard! You got their snipe! Please sound more like the last dragon when speaking. <laughs> I don't think we can talk about Sean Connery as well without obviously mentioning Darby O'Gill and the little people, but also um, without mentioning the Daryl Hammond impression on Celebrity Jeopardy. Uh, so if you ever watch Celebrity Jeopardy on SNL, Will Ferrell played Alex Trebek and they had two other famous people every week or every time they did the sketch. And Daryl Hammond would always do Sean Connery. Pretty bad impression. Bit like mine, it has to be said. But he was a very, very funny character, very, very funny version of it. Who was always fucking with Trebek and always making <laughs> no, jokes about right. banging Trebek's mother. The day is mine. Is a is a quote I say all the time. I'm not sure whether it's actually from a Sean Connery film or, or whether it's from Celebrity Jeopardy. But uh, but who knows? Anyway, I suddenly remember my Charlemagne. 
It's another one I quote all the time. <laughs> yes, it is. Have you read much Charlemagne, Chris? <laughs> no, I no. do not know any Charlemagne. The first film that showed the flushing of Charlemagne down the toilet oh, was an Alfred Hitchcock film from... <laughs> Let my armies be the grapes and the wrath and the the sky. Anyway, yes, indeed. Sean Connery, who passed away last week, aged 90. Any other bits of movie news to talk about other than Big Tam? Yeah, there were a few bits this week, weren't there? Um, there was news about Ama Asante's Billion Dollar Spy, which is what I was referring to with the whole number thing earlier. You see, billions is quite large. Oh, that's no? cheating. I don't think it's cheating. cheating. I think it's just knowing what the news is. No, no, it's cheating. It's cheating to have billion in your film. I mean, she's it's been like, planning this for a while. I don't I don't think she knew that you were going to make a big thing of it. <laughs> <laughs> she hasn't cleared this with us. But then again, <laughs> then again, Michael Caine starred in Billion Dollar Brain. So we, all we need to do is find a film with a number in it, plus Billion Dollar Brain, and Michael Caine is the winner. Fantastic. But in the meantime, Army Hammer and Mads Mikkelsen are going to be starring yes. in the movie. What's it about, Helen? So it's about the sort of tail end of the Cold War and a Soviet engineer goes to this CIA guy basically saying, I've got some secrets. And everybody else at the CIA is a bit like, I don't think this guy has anything real. And uh, this one agent who's obviously Hammer's character, Brad Reed, he's only newly arrived in Moscow. He says, no, this guy, Adolf Tolch... Tolkachev, I apologise to all Russians listening, um, <laughs> that this guy uh, Tolkachev has secrets and he believes in him. And he comes up with an entire massive trove of state secrets that helps bring the Cold War to an end. Based on a, I think, non-fiction book. Um, it's something Sounds that cool. Asante's been working on for a while and it does, does sound very, very cool indeed. And that's, to me, really good casting. I mean, Mads Mikkelsen is basically just always good casting. I will take him in anything. <laughs> Just cast him at anything, he's good. Basically, yes. Jordan Peele is producing a remake of The People Under the Stairs. That's got to be getting you quite excited, Chris. Eh. No, you're I not I don't fan. know The People Under the Stairs. Tell me. Uh, I love it. So it's uh, Wes Craven in 91, I want to say. Uh, Ving Rhames is in it. But it's, I, I, that was one of the earlier Wes Craven films that mm. I got really, really obsessed with. I watched it That's great good. many times. Uh, but it's a, it's a fun little film. So, yeah, I'm interested to see what happens with this. Obviously, it's, you know, it's not Jordan Peele directed. He's producing it. So it's not quite as exciting as it could have been. But uh, still, you know, good stuff, I'm so saying. What what's it about? So it's about a group of kids who break into a house and the owners of the house are deeply creepy and strange. And they have people who they are keeping under the stairs. But... Uh, but they're not the villains of the piece. It's the it's a deeply creepy man and woman played by Everett McGill and Wendy Roby who um, were on Twin Peaks at the same time, mm -hmm. pretty much. Um, yeah, actually, no, it is. It is. It's a really good craven. It's a really good craven. Uh, and if Jordan Peele's bringing something to it, it's got lots of allegory and political subtext in it, and uh, so that could be definitely beefed up and brought to the fore. So I'm all for that. And uh, yeah, all right, you've turned me around, Jimbo. Well done. <laughs> Amazing. Good. That was fast. That was quick. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm not one to stick to my guns. Uh, <laughs> also, uh, I was excited to see that Insidious 5 is happening and they're bringing back Patrick Wilson, uh, but not just to star, but he is also going to direct. He's going to make his mm. directorial debut on Insidious Ooh. 5. And uh, I didn't really love the last two Insidious. In Insidious. 
in City High. Uh, but hopefully he'll he'll come back and be good in this one. No word on Rose Byrne. So Ty Simpkins, uh, who's, you know, last seen turning up at a certain someone's funeral in a certain big blockbuster that we all may have seen. And uh, he's going to be in it. It's, it's going to follow his character as he goes to college. But then some evil stuff starts happening. And Patrick Wilson's there. But no Rose Byrne, as far as I can no, see. So, maybe, maybe yeah. she's maybe she's ill, and it's it's, it's a sick burn. Oh, that's oh. quite good. That is quite good. Wow, that's quite it's quite clever. Anything else? Please help. <laughs> <laughs> Send help. Send help. Oh, there was. I mean, do we want to talk about this trailer for Songbirds, the pandemic thriller that was produced oh, by Michael Bay? No. I I I I I cannot think of anything I want less than a film that imagines that COVID thriller. is still with us in 2024. <laughs> it's really it hard mutated. for me to, to conceive, but it's mutated. <laughs> the neutrinos have mutated. The neutrinos have mutated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just I I I I don't want it. I want it to go I away. I don't I want do, it I either. Do. No. And I know it's our job to watch it, and I'm sure we will. It stars KJ Appa, obviously, from Riverdale. And obviously. It has, obviously, it has uh, Sophia Carson in it. It has, uh, who else? Alexandra Daddario. Demi Moore is in it for some reason. Bradley Whitford is in it. I don't know Bradley why. Bradley Whitford, yeah. Bradley Whitford. Um, yes, Josh. Uh, it's directed by a guy called Adam Mason. I, I just, I, I don't, I don't want it, and I will have to watch it because it's my job, but I, 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 just... I just want to be on record. Oh, it's not directed by Bay. No, no, he's producing. Oh, okay. Well, okay. You've turned me around again. I'm, I'm now interested. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't need this. I know Stephen Knight is um, written a film called Lockdown that has an all-star cast, and it's apparently some sort of heist comedy set during the lockdown, and like likes Van Hathaway are in it, and Doug Liman's going to going to direct it, and it, it'll probably be absolutely fantastic. But no, absolutely stick it in the river. Mm. I think we can all agree the only good thing that has come out of lockdown is the fact that in Brixton, someone has graffitied the words, we're going to lock down two above the street sign for Electric Avenue. Mm. Yeah, that, so, that's clever. That's clever. Hey, I've seen both you guys in the flesh this week. Not in the in the sexy flesh. <laughs> wow. not, not the Attack of the Clones <laughs> wow. tattoo flesh. Thank God. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So Jimbo and I just happened to be in town yesterday and uh, went around uh, some some shops and uh, I bought this oh Galactus. God. Funko oh. Pop in Forbidden Planet. Hadn't been to Forbidden oh, wow. Planet in ages. That was that was lovely. Last day of lock before lockdown, so I wanted to you know mm. spend fifteen pounds in shops <laughs> to help them help them through these difficult times. Mm. And uh, and Hell's Bells, my wife That's and I right. bumped into you in Sainsbury's of Sainsbury's. all places the other day. And you were like, "What are you doing here? You have your own Sainsbury's. Why are you here at the big Sainsbury's? <laughs> so this is our Sainsbury's." Sainsbury's. <laughs> Genuinely, that was the conversation. I'm not even kidding. Yeah. Um, but I had just decided, because we're all making the most of it before, or we were making the most of it before lockdown two began, mm. um, I was like, hey, I'm going to go nuts. I'm going to go to the big Sainsbury's. Get your panic buying in early. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, it's tremendous, tremendous stuff. But hey, listen, on the other side of the lockdown, we can, we can meet up again. We can walk around each other in circles. I think that's how these things work. But, yeah, at a yeah. six metre distance or something. Six metre distance is going to be a lot of fun, uh, which basically our way of saying there's not a lot of movie news this week. There's a lot of horror yeah. movie news. So um, one quick thing. Do you remember the film Orphan from a few years ago? Yes. Vaguely. I mean, yes, of course. Do you remember it had possibly the most batshit insane twist of the last <laughs> yes, 15, <I> <laughs> 20 years? So yes. 
Orphan was a horror film. Oh, can I spoil a twist here? I guess I am because I have to because I'm talking about it. Okay, I think spoil it, but anyone who still wants to watch Orphan and remain the twist intact, skip forward maybe like 30 seconds. All three of you (laughs) skip forward now. Okay, so Orphan (laughs) is about Peter Sarsgaard and um, Fira Farmiga are married and in their lives they adopt this young orphan girl called Esther, played by Isabel Furman, all right? And she's really creepy and begins to act in weird homicidal ways and develop some sort of fixation on Peter Sarsgaard's character. And you're thinking, oh, this is all a bit creepy and inappropriate. What's going on? And then the twist of the film is that (gasps) Esther is not a kid after all, but (gasps) is actually a fully grown woman who is just happens to look like a 10-year-old child. And she's completely off the deep end. And so this movie is nuts. And so now Isabel Furman is going to play Esther again in a prequel to Orphan because double spoilers for Orphan, she doesn't make it out the end of that movie. So so she's going to play Esther again in Orphan, the prequel, where I presume we'll figure out how she became an orphan, right? So just to be clear, that actress still looks like a 10-year-old, however many years on from Orphan. They're going to use forced perspective and makeup to de-age her apparently and like forced perspective like in <laughs> the hobbits <laughs> not kidding that's what's so in our Ian news Ian McKellen's story. just going to be sitting in the foreground of every one of her shots <laughs> I mean that's what we're looking at wowzers wowzers bloody yeah. hell that's exciting stuff isn't it that is exciting stuff that's where we are that's the movie news this week got an insidious sequel and orphan a prequel there you go. Orphan prequel. That's the as, Annie that's as good as you, get. you needed. Yeah. Anyway, oh, I should also point out that uh, while we're here, we might as well plug the new issue of Empire, which is on sale right now. It is absolutely fantastic. It mm. has the Suicide Squad on the cover. Loads of great stuff inside as well. It is available. Well, all good and evil news agents. I'm not sure. Are they open or locked down? Non-essential businesses, right? I think say, they're locked down. Are they locked down? Well, if, you're, if your local supermarket has magazines, we are yes, there. Yes, I, I was yes. actually in a supermarket earlier and was able to buy a magazine. Was it the same piece so. next to you and not the one next to me? Where no, should, the one next belong, to you, Chris. You should, I was hoping should, to bump into you guys. Fucking no. hell. Furious Petrol stations this. are also open. They have magazines. <laughs> yes, they do have magazines. And listen, not just us, but any magazine, but mainly us, support magazines if you can support anything you can local bookstores look any local business that is struggling at the moment local cinemas if there's ways you can contribute to to them to help keep them afloat during this lockdown uh that is much appreciated but yes also from our point of view we would love it if you kept buying empire magazine and of course subscribing to our spoiler special subscription channel as well we've got loads of stuff coming your way uh We've got loads of stuff coming your way on that. The weekly Mandalorian spoiler specials are starting up again. Chapter 10 this week. We're very excited about that. Those are up every Monday. Uh, I had two marathon chats with the most of the creators and cast and writers of the wonderful BBC sitcom Ghosts last week. So we'll be doing an epic spoiler special dedicated to that next week as well. We have His House. We have Dawn of the Dead. What we don't have in November thanks to the lockdown, thanks to Sinners being shut down, is Freaky. So we were going to do a spoiler special this month for Freaky. The interview is recorded. It is ready to go. We're just waiting for Freaky to get a release date. It's had to move off the Friday the 13th release date that it had, which is all rather apt. And I I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to move it to another Friday the 13th. And it won't be one for ages. But let's see what happens on that one. But yeah, buy us, 
buy other things, buy everything, if you can, if you of can. course. If you can. Time now for our final guest this week. So last week, and it's not going to be in cinemas right now, but I think it is still available on PVOD, the fantastic horror movie Relic came out, a wonderful Australian horror film, which deals with a very, very serious topic, which is dementia and what happens to a family when when an elderly member of the family starts suffering from dementia and it fuses through a horror movie prism. It features tremendous performances. It's really scary. It's really insidious, really creepy and unsettling film. And it stars Emily Mortimer, the wonderful Emily Mortimer, great British actor, now turning her hand to writing as well. Of course, we discuss that in this interview. She has a kind of personal connection to Relic. Her father, the great writer John Mortimer, passed away from dementia a few years ago. So I caught up with her over Squadcast earlier this week and we had a chat about all sorts of stuff, including the election, because I was talking to her on election day in the States, but also Relic. And I'm going to be honest, guys, we, you know, usually interviews are quite lighthearted on the Empire podcast, and this one is lighthearted in places, but we get into some pretty heavy stuff, um, including talking about deaths of parents and whatnot. So if you feel that that is something you don't want to hear, or if you feel that might trigger you in any way, then I would advise it maybe skip the second half, certainly, of the interview. But if you do want to hear that, it's a really interesting, compelling, uh, engrossing interview, nothing to do with me, all to do with Emily Mortimer. Here we go. Delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast and Lockdown, of course, by the star of Relic, Emily Mortimer. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm on, on tenterhooks, as is the whole world right now, waiting to see what befalls at the end of today. Although I guess we're not even going to know by the end of today who our president is. No, I guess, I guess not. This is a good distraction, talking to you about movies. <laughs> well, let's talk about politics for 17 and a half minutes and then talk about movies for two and a half. No, let's please. do it that way. God, uh, no. <laughs> Can you vote over there? What's your situation? Yeah, I, I voted. I, I, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a citizen of, of, well, I'm a citizen of the world, but I'm, I'm a citizen of England. Of, I'm a British citizen as well as an American citizen. So I've got dual, I've got two passports. So I, um, I voted. I voted early. On okay. uh, on Thursday, uh, at the Barclays Center in New York, All in right. a completely empty, there was there was a there were there was nobody there. But um, it, we chose very cleverly chose to go when it was pissing with rain, and um, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, succeeded in not queuing up. Um, but it's really amazing to see. Uh, you know, at six in the morning, there were there were lines. I'm, I I feel. I don't know. What do you think is going to happen? I don't know. I mean, this is the thing. We're, we're recording this now, but this will be heard on Friday. So everyone will know what's going to happen. So, but here's the thing, Emily, I can go and record two versions of this. So I can say, <laughs> you know, I can say with confidence now, I think Biden's going to win. And then if Trump wins, I can go back and make it look as if I knew that all along. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty cool for me but uh yeah, yeah i'm, I'm yeah. hoping obviously we're meant to be you know we're meant to be impartial on the empire podcast but i think regular listeners over the last few weeks and months will know we're no, we're no fans of the guy who has some sort of dried gerbil living on top of his head we're no fun <laughs> we're no fans of that guy uh how's, no. how's it been i mean because obviously now as you say dual citizenship you know you've you've been living in new york for for how long now how long's new york been your home um, New York has been my home since my oldest kid, who's now 17, was two, so 15 years. And before that, we lived in, in L.A. just for about um, 
for five years. So really my adult life has mainly been in America. Um, I mean, I, I was about, I think I was 28 when I met Alessandra, who I'm married to. And, um, and so pretty much ever since then, I've been living here on and off. And now I'm a bona fide. Uh, I've been living here. Hang on. Let, let, let me think. Have I been living here longer than I? No, I haven't quite been living here longer than I lived in England before I came. But um, um, I now have 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 dwindled into accepting that this is my um, this is really my home. And mm. and that, yeah, I belong here and, I, and and coming home feels like coming home now. Coming back to Brooklyn. What about coming back to England? What, 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 do, what do you feel like when you when you come back here? Well, I feel. Um, I guess it's just that 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 you know this is where my kids feel at home, really. And so um, this, when they go to England, it, they love it, but it's not home. This is definitely the place that they kind of miss and pine for and wish they were at when they're not. And um, and so therefore. It's kind of the same for me. Um, you know, I go home. I go home a lot to England, and the and the sort of the the cool thing about you know, there's I think there's an amazing perspective that you get on the world from from not you know from having roots in lots of places and from being um, feeling like you kind of belong everywhere. But then there's also a feeling that you slightly belong nowhere, which is, which is, which is the flip side of it. And, um, and you're always leaving people you love behind. So yeah, whenever I come back here, I'm leaving my mom and my sister and my, my best oldest friends in England. And then inevitably when I go back there, I'm leaving a lot of people I love here. Um, and, and that's hard, but, um, I I do think it, it it lends you a kind of a strange perspective. It's a bit like being in outer space, looking down on the world, or, or being a sort of, or being a dog in outer space, because um, no one really has a sort of vested interest in bringing you home, particularly. But you're just sort of you're you're floating around, looking down at the at the universe from a great height and thinking, oh. <laughs> so how how have you managed to hold on to your accent? Through all this, uh, all this sort of this this transitory life that you lead, when you're where you're you're here, there, you're everywhere. Uh, I've got a very spongy accent. If I spend if I spend as long in New York as as you have, I'd be I'd be hey, I'd be talking like that. But what about you? You've managed to hang on to your Englishness in that way. I don't know. I think it's just I don't know. It's just a part of. It's such a part of who I am. I wouldn't sort of recognize myself if I started talking differently um and I I definitely have sort of pathetically hung on to um you know I become I sort of become an expat in the sense that I have a lot of there are a lot of sort of like I've got sort of plates with pictures of the royal family on them hanging on my kitchen wall (laughs) and I've got um I know it's really sad and um I've sort of forced like Union Jack lampshades on my children and things like that. And um, little, I'm always buying like at the airport, like little London taxis or London buses for them to have on their, <laughs> on their bookshelves. So anyway, so I guess I've just kept hold of it in a sort of desperate attempt not to lose the last vestiges of my identity, whatever that may be. And oh, wow. uh, so, yeah, so I am, um, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, I, yes. And also there's just so much sort of traveling and there's so much becoming other people and yeah. throwing yourself into other worlds that, that in, in, in the jobs that we do that I, 
and the life that we lead that I feel like there just has to be some things that stay the same. One of them has to be <laughs> my my accent just has to stay the same, otherwise it's just too much. <laughs> Who am I today? What's going on? What's happening? <laughs> and uh, Relic is obviously, it's a tremendous film and it, it is uh, an Australian film, an Australian story. Whereabouts did you shoot that? We shot that in Melbourne, um, okay. uh, which... I think has succeeded in being the only place on earth apart from New Zealand that doesn't have a coronavirus case now. Um, (laughs) But yeah, we shot it in Melbourne um, uh, in both in in a studio where, well, it was kind of not a studio, it's a bit of a glamorized word for it. It was a sort of big like warehouse, I suppose, um, on the outskirts of, uh, on the outskirts of of Melbourne, which had lots of sort of holes in the roof and rain coming in and birds flying about and sort of corrugated iron rattling in the wind. Um, and then um, we did some of it in, in various houses, kind of either in the city or on the outskirts of the city that were all, all used to be the one house, the one sort of main haunted house or whatever, um, okay. however you want to describe it in, in the yes. movie. One of the great weapons of, of horror can be its its metaphorical nature, its allegorical nature. And so it's a film that's clearly about this family that is suffering. The grandmother of the family is suffering from dementia. And I think the way it presents that is really interesting, really uh, innovative as well. Was that something that drew you to it? I know you've had your own experiences in your in your in your personal life as well. Were you looking for something along these lines, something that could tackle this subject through that that sort of allegorical prism? Well, I guess I'm just always looking for anything that that deals with with life and the kind of you know the pain and the and also the beauty of the confusion of it all um, in a way that is feels fresh and exciting and kind of as you say innovative and i i felt that it was an incredibly audacious and exciting look at a subject matter which is is very difficult to grapple with in any meaningful way and that actually in our culture until maybe until this virus has has um has sort of given us new ways of thinking and looking at death, maybe that we've become we've become less frightened of death or, or we've become more used to the to talking about it and dealing with it and mm. and but certainly when this film was made, which was before the virus had hit, we we I felt like death, which was something the death of someone that you love, which was something that I had obviously gone through like most of us have. Yeah. Um and therefore all the feelings and thoughts that one has about one's own mortality in, in relation to somebody that you love dying is, is not really, it's not really gone into or talked about in, in any kind of, you know, real or meaningful way very often in, in the kind of art that we, you know, in, in, in what you watch or what you read or, or, you know, and, and I felt like, you know, that, that we, I, that, that we'd been, sort of in denial almost of the fact that this this thing that happens to every single one of us and that we're, all of us will die and all of us will have to see the people we love die. Mm-hmm. And yet that whole sort of issue or process or journey or whatever that, we're, that we all have to go on um, has, has been kind of underserved in a way in, in, in art. And it's partly because it's really, it's, 
there's no real silver lining to it. You know, people die and it's just shit. Um, and, yeah. and there's not yeah. really a kind of, it's very difficult to find a kind of um, uh, an ending to that story that makes one feel better about life. But of course, there is a way of doing it. And I fa- and there has to be because it is a fact. We are all going to die. We all die. And there has to be a way of making peace with that fact in, in, in a way that also doesn't kind of sweeten it or sugarcoat it or try to make it not exist or go away you know there has has to be a way of dealing with it artistically Mm. and creatively where you're facing the monster and yet you're also kind of getting something cathartic about out of that getting some kind of feeling of of sort of peace or reconciliation through facing it and i just felt like the way that um natalie had written that script i just read it and i was just like wow this i was really struck by uh by that fact and and I felt like in reading it and then again in in performing it and then again in watching it that she really did achieve something extraordinary with this genre where she used the genre to I mean to me there is really nothing scarier and more horrifying than death and than than what we've just you know what I've just been discussing than people you love yeah. dying yeah yeah and um and and watching people you love die it's horrifying and it's and it's but it's horrifying in a way that is is more like a sort of horror film than 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 a sort of straight drama would be like it's 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 physically terrifying like you see people literally kind of disintegrate in front of your eyes the people that you love you see them sort of change in a way that is like unthinkable you know that that they suddenly yeah. become a different person and it's almost like they have been inhabited by a different person or a kind of some strange force or whatever it is and um and that experience is is has the kind of absurd quality of a horror film at times i think and and it isn't some kind of sort of you know meditative lyrical kind of journey that 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 would be better suited to a straight drama um it's it's absurd and it and it's hor- and it's comic at times also like yeah. physically yeah. sort of funny like um and i felt like the film just really got to using the genre using the absurdity the humor the kind of terror the you know just like oh my god i can't believe this is happening sort of feeling um, and it used all those the tools of the genre to be able to really get at that experience in a way that that um, if it hadn't been a horror film, I don't think it would have done. And um, it was the sort of perfect marriage of subject and and um, you know the way it was treated. And uh, and mm. then because of the genre as well, you could get to this kind of amazing catharsis with this this last 20 minutes of the movie, which obviously we shouldn't talk about. Oh, I don't know whether we can now mm. that it's out or whatever, but... Uh, we probably shouldn't. <laughs> we'll let people discover it. there's something really sort of extraordinarily beautiful and really horrifying, and yet in, in this kind of absolutely sort of spellbinding, beautiful way that happens at the very end of the movie that I do think that there's the, there's the, the kind of the catharsis that ha- happens at the end with those last 20 minutes um, is... Um, Again, she uses the genre to be able to give you, as 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 I was saying earlier, like that the feeling of some kind of 
reconciliation to or, or making peace with loss and yeah. I, and anyway the, the 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 fact that she does it in such an entertaining and economical way um and that she manages to make a, a movie that's that works completely brilliantly as a horror film but yet also makes you yeah. feel all these kind of feelings and grapple with all these existential things and makes you feel better at the end is really just like <laughs> an incredible achievement i think yeah, yeah, absolutely. The best horror films often do that. I mean, some of them just have people killing people with chainsaws, and that's totally fine. <laughs> but yeah, the best horror films, I think, have something on their minds as yes. well, and something that they they want to say, and they you know they can illuminate. You're absolutely right about the, the the process of you know death can be terrifying. You know, not to you know, but my you know watching my own father pass away, for example, was was horrifying. Will stay with me for forever. Yes. You know, just you know, his his final few moments. I mean, it's very hard to capture what that is like, I think, the sheer terror of watching someone you love take their last breath. Yes. It's, it's really hard to capture. Yes. Oh my God, no. I mean, me too. I've, I've experienced that with my own dad. And I, I mean, I, yeah, it's, it's like a sort of, um, I, almost, I remember feeling that I, I myself was almost going to die at that moment. Like the sort of, um, it's just so scary. And it's almost like mm. you, you can't, you yeah you can't um begin to kind of contemplate fathom what that feeling that physical yeah. feeling is like um is so extreme and so extraordinary and i think that the movie some goes some way to just at least exploring that and yeah absolutely. and i think that that feels really um it feels really good to, you know, it's like outing this thing that doesn't often get talked about, you know, it gets sort of whispered mm -hmm. about between very close friends at sort of certain times in their lives, but it doesn't really get talked about in a kind of open way in, 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 yeah. in, in this kind of way. And I feel like she's done us a service by doing that. Obviously, you know, as well as your, your work as an actor, you have been turning your hand to writing as well. Yes. And you have you have the pursuit of love yes, coming up yes. uh, on the BBC, yeah. <laughs> which is very very exciting. And was this something that you know? Have you always been dabbling? I know you 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 wrote uh, Doll and M with, uh, with with Dolly Wells, who was on our podcast last year. She came up to one of our live shows. We we went around the, the country, did a little mini tour, and, and Dolly was kind enough to come up to Liverpool okay. for a show, which was which was tremendous. Um, I know you wrote that. Did that give you the bug in a way? And if it did give you the bug, then. It, it's taken a while to get to the pursuit of love. <laughs> so is this something that you're 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 kind of dabbling in slowly but surely? Yes. Well, um, in the meantime, since Dolly and M, me and Dolly have been sort of stopping and starting writing about ten different things together, and um, and <laughs> and then and then life gets in the way, and then you know, yes, you you have other jobs and acting jobs and children and husbands and lives but i um i had <laughs> i uh i i have always i've always written i've always written actually ever since i was little i i and mm. um and uh it was always something that i i just sort of did and um and then uh somebody asked me if i would be interested in writing the pilot for the pursuit of love and I had loved it as a child I'd loved the book as a teenager and so um I said yes and then you know it's that thing is that once somebody's like once there's 
once you've got a deadline and somebody's paying you money to do something and you've got to do it, then you just bloody do it, which it's that that was the missing ingredient in the intervening yeah. years. Um, so other things, other things took precedence always. But um, yeah, I'm really, I really enjoyed it. I really, the book is all about the pursuit of love. It's all about love and, and, and the desperate sort of need for romantic love. And, 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 and there's, and it follows the story of two girls, one one who is determined to fall in love at all costs and the other one who lives life in a much more sort of careful and considered way. And to me, that's kind of one of the central paradoxes of life. It's like, what's more important than love? And yet, if you live your life obsessively in the quest for it, it can be painful and, and um, kind of destructive and so uh one has to be more careful but then if one's more careful life can be quite difficult and boring and sad itself so whatever there's like it's like and to me there's like (laughs) to me it just sums up the kind of nightmare sort of difficulties of of being alive in the world and um uh i really enjoyed adapting it and then we've we filmed it all over the the summer in england and um and just sort of managed to kind of get in under the wire before everything has sort of sh- sh- stopped for a while again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which just feels like incredible luck. But so now I'm sitting editing it, which is why I haven't got out of my pajamas and I've got very unbrushed <laughs> hair. Luckily, no one can see. Um, but I'm doing, yeah, I'm doing this kind of mad rush dash to try and get it edited by Christmas. I mean, not that it's going to be on the, it won't be on Christmas. It will be after Christmas. Then. It's not being dropped after the Queen's speech. No, it's, it's, it was meant it's to be Christmas. Situation. It was meant to be like a Christmas special thing on Boxing Day the next day and the day after that. But then... And then we got shut down the first time because of Corona. Uh, and then now, so it'll be, I don't know when it'll be, probably be around Easter time. All right. Well, when when that happens, do come on, because I'd love to talk to you about your writing process and how you're finding life as a writer. And uh, so you're you're always welcome back on the Empire podcast. Uh, oh, no, I'd love to come back and, and talk, talk to you about everything. <laughs> absolutely absolutely and uh, it'll be less heavy i'm guessing as well <laughs> i know it's much less heavy although it's heavy in a different way it's heavy in a different way yeah well yeah, these are big themes you're getting with these days Emily. I, know. I mean you know these are know. you know death love life it's it's all there it's all there absolutely what else is there? um <laughs> precisely emily i'm gonna let you go it's been an absolute pleasure thank you My so much pleasure. and uh, and best of luck editing in lockdown yeah you too and and let's keep our fingers crossed for today Indeed, indeed. Go Biden slash edit. Go Trump. Yeah, <laughs> <bye>. <laughs> Not never Don't go Trump. Bye bye. <laughs> never, never say that. I'll edit that out. Okay, take care. Bye bye. Okay, so that was Emily Mortimer, and hope to have her back on the show next year at some point. She's great. Relic is fantastic. Go and see Relic if you can. Seek it out if you can. But this week, now as we're now in lockdown, we weren't in lockdown. We recorded last week's show. We didn't know we were going to go into lockdown. We recorded last week's show. Uh, And so when I said things like, hey, next week, we're going to be joined by Keith David, star of Horizon Line. Well, Horizon Line has now moved back, so we're not going to be joined by Keith David. And uh, I had an interview in the bag with Vince Vaughn and Catherine Newton for Freaky. That has also moved back. And in fact, this week's schedules have been absolutely blown apart by lockdown. Quite rightly so, because studios that were sending their products into cinemas have decided to wait for cinemas to reopen. 
But there are always some heroic movies that are left standing and going direct to things like Curzon Home Cinema, more power to their elbow. And one of those is the new film from the great Swedish director, Roy Anderson. Uh, last scene, of course, directing a pigeon sat on a branch, reflecting on existence, which I, I liked, but I preferred a pigeon sat in a branch, reflecting on existence, colon, Infinity War. <laughs> Uh, Do you think that's what the Bond double take pigeon was doing? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That was a pigeon sat in the dock reflecting on James Bond driving a speedboat onto (laughs) onto the uh, the pavement. What the hell was going on? The speedboat or gondola? Can't remember. Anyway, Moonraker, rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) This is a new film from Roy Anderson and it's Mm. called About Endlessness. Helen, can you talk about About Endlessness, but not endlessly, please? Okay, sure. I will. St- it's actually only seventy-six minutes, which I feel is worth noting. Hey, let's do it minute by minute. Let's go. Let's go. Because anyone is terrified by the title. Um, okay, so uh, you know, I was a bit of a Roy Anderson skeptic. I have to say, I think the first one of his I saw was actually a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence, mm-hmm. and I was completely delighted by it. Like I mm-hmm. loved it um, because it's essentially a, a series of odd little vignettes, ranging from the tragic to the horrific to the. Mm-hmm. Absolutely hilarious. Um, And this is sort of more of the same. The difference is this time, I think it's a little bit more serious. There are fewer punchlines because A Pigeon Sat in a Branch, honestly, I'm not kidding, is hilarious. It's really, really funny. So this one is sometimes absurdly funny, but I think is is a little bit darker, a little bit gloomier um, in some ways. Um, But what he does, he still does brilliantly and and I still kind of loved. So all of his colours are these incredibly kind of drab, sandy, washed out looking colours. But he composes his shots and they're all pretty much shot in medium frame. He composes his shots so beautifully that each one looks like a sort of, you know, Renaissance painting or something. Mm. And um and then he has these absurd little vignettes about human life. So there'll be, there's one kind of thread that runs through it about a priest losing his faith, um, mm. which is, again, sometimes tragic, sometimes horrific, sometimes really, really funny. There's a bit where the priest comes in desperate for help from a doctor and the doctor basically is just like, it's closing time, I can't help you. And he's trying to kind of push him out the door and look, you're going to have to trust me, it's hilarious. But he also has these, you know, visions of war and destruction and, you know, despair and grief and um, people being alone. So it kind of is, and this is going to sound ridiculous, it kind of is, you know, the whole human condition um, in a movie yeah. in that very kind of Swedish way. In 76 uh, minutes. In 76 minutes. Bad. You know, you can't say further than that. I, I just think his films are so beautiful to look at and so singular and so weird um, that I think he's kind of great. Yeah, I agree with that. He gave us one four stars. I think uh, it, it it plays some of the same notes that you might have seen him play with in the past. And 76 minutes. I mean, come Get on, on. can't say further than that. But yes, we gave this one four stars, four stars then for about endlessness. And then we have target number one, in which Josh Hartnett wears a goatee beard and looks very serious. Indeed we do. So yeah, this is, uh, this is directed by Daniel Roby and it is based on a true story kind of, of Alain <laughs> Olivier, who was a Canadian drug addict from Quebec, who got locked up for eight years in a Thai prison in the 1980s uh, after having been, shall we say, um, set up, maybe slightly, by Canadian intelligence. So uh, this sees Josh Hartnett as this uh, Canadian investigative journalist, Victor Malaric, and Olivier has kind of been metamorphosized into a drug addict called Daniel Legere, played by Antoine Olivier Pilon. Um, so it's, it, shall we say, it's riffing on the true story, 
rather than like properly adapting it. Mm -hmm. So this this was this came out in Canada actually in July and in the US in in July as well. Um, and the and Roby's actually been trying to make this for wow like thirteen years. It's been a long time in the works. But there's there's sort of two narratives at work here. So two intertwining stories, if you will. So the first is Hartnett's kind of showboating investigative journalist who's got this. Frankly, he has a casual approach to copy deadlines that will put even you to shame, Chris. Um, Fuck you. And he's juggling a TV show with his job as this sort of news- newspaper hack. And he's doing neither particularly well until he stumbles quite by accident on the story of Legere. Sort of mainly, I think, because he needed something to file just to satisfy his editor. But he soon digs deep out and he finds there's a conspiracy hinting at an injustice. Uh, and then the other narrative we look at in this kind of slightly... There's some timeline shenanigans going mm. on here about what happens when, but uh, it shows how Leger got himself into this situation in the first place. Not, in fact, not, as the Canadian authorities maintain, by being a drug pick, Kimpin, but rather by being a total fuckwit, which isn't, strictly speaking, illegal. Or well, that probably should be. Anyway, he gets involved with <laughs> other fuckwits, and before you know it, he's up to his arse in trouble. So... This is clearly like something that, that that Roby had a real passion for. He wouldn't have spent thirteen years trying to put it onto the screen, but he like he went to the actual trials of of Olivier, the real person who isn't in the film. Uh, he flew to Thailand. He interviewed witnesses. Like he got really involved in all this stuff. So it was clearly a big th- thing for him. Mm. And he and he's done a decent job technically of, of I guess kind of weaving it into this sort of thriller. Except it's not a particularly th- thrilling thriller. Like it's a little plodding. It's quite dour. It's very Canadian, um, and it really I, I found it really took ages to get anywhere. And and you know by the time we end up in like the Thai jail, it it kind of switches track and becomes stops being this sort of interesting period piece and becomes this sort of very familiar kind of banged up abroad type sh- film. I thought Hartnett was very good. He's very mm. charismatic and compelling, but I think Pilon actually shines here. So he's mm. he gives Daniel this real sort of doe-eyed vulnerability uh, and I think it makes the weight of the plight of what he's going through really hit home I think without him playing that it kind of wouldn't have landed the way it does um, it's set obviously in the 80s but it feels to me like a bit like a like an old 70s crime thriller like it's all grain it's all washed out lighting uh, it looks great I mean there's a lot to like I guess but I think it just needed to be a little bit leaner, a little bit tighter, more focused, not to mention more factually accurate. Um, I've got to be honest with you, like there's so many liberties taken here with the source material that I kind of wondered why they why didn't they just... Why they bothered, yeah. You know, why adapt it? Why not just write a new story? Like, it just seems really mm. random. Like, you know, it becomes clear as all, you know, based on true life stories, they have the title cards at the end telling you what happened to real people. And the, the title card might as well have said, hope you enjoyed the film, we fucking made it up. It just, you know, it seemed a bit <laughs> of an odd choice. But sure... If you if with that caveat aside, it's fine. Yeah, I'd agree. I think it could have been faster in the opening half, especially. I think it really gets there at the end, but it it, it there's a di- I think there's a difference between taking your time and establishing your characters and just dragging titting a little about. bit. Yeah, a little bit <laughs> titting about, to be honest. Mm. Um, so I maybe would have liked it to get where it was going a little bit faster. It's over two hours, right? So it could have yes, been closer to ninety minutes, and I think it would have benefited from it. But I, I again, yeah. I, I, I agree Anderson. with you, James. Under an hour and a half. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I agree with you, James. I think the performances were great, and I think they gave it a lot of what it has. And it looks good. Mm. It does. Especially when Josh Hartnett's on screen, am I right, ladies? Hey, isn't oh, it? Yeah. Called oh, well. Most Wanted in the US. Yeah. In fact. We talk about that, Josh yeah. uh, Hartnett and I, and uh, the title changed. I think it's got three different titles. Do you think they were confused? It, they were worried it would get confused with the Muppets? <laughs> yes. Most Wanted. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, none of them really get to the heart of what the film is. You know, they're all mm. they're, they all make it look and the, the cover of this thing as well. I don't know if you've seen the the British poster mm. for it, but it makes it look like a action packed 
ex- action <laughs> extravaganza, which it absolutely is not. You right. know, I'm surprised mm. they didn't try and call it something like Terminal Bullet or something. <laughs> to be fair, there is an action sequence where Josh Hartnett types furiously with two fingers, and that was that was edge of your seat stuff. I mean, I'm sorry, a journalist should not be typing with two fingers. That's upsetting. <laughs> well, it's one of those old Honestly. manual typewriters where you got to put some real oh, welly fair. into okay. the pressing okay. of the keys. So. Oh my goodness, what's your what's your typing situation? What's your typing approach? I use my fingers. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Three stars then for target number one. I think there's only actually one movie left to talk about this week, and that is Luxor. Mm. Uh, now, Helen, I have not seen Luxor, but I know you have. However, I have, I have discovered today that there is an Australian caravan company called Empire Caravans, and they have Luxor. So I'm hoping we get some crossover with those. So they have, they, there's an Empire Luxor Caravan, 22-foot chassis, tandem XL <laughs> Caravan, equipped with the following, shower and toilet, uh, front window with a shade, a microwave oven, range of windows, skylights, pull-up blinds, a TV, an external picnic table, bonza. I wonder if we're getting slightly off track. <laughs> Is the film as good as the caravan? Um. Uh, on that description, yes, sure. Two water yes. tanks. I mean, that's impressive. This film has probably, well, it has a swimming pool actually. So, so yeah, it matches the All water right. tanks. Well, this has an external battery box. Um, uh, this has people, which, as we all know from the Matrix, can be used as batteries. Anyway, if I may continue. <laughs> This is the second film from Zaina Dura, who uh, back in 2010 made a bit of a splash at Sundance with a film called The Imperialists Are Still Alive. Um, and it's taken her until now to make her second film because, you know, Hollywood is institutionally racist and sexist, I, I imagine, is part of it. However, this is the story of uh, Hannah, who's played by Andrea Riseborough, um, who is a uh, medic, a sort of medicine sans frontières kind of person who's been working on the border of Syria and uh, in a war zone, basically, and helping uh, victims of that war. And she takes a break and goes to Egypt, to Luxor, obviously, um, to just kind of decompress a little bit and try and process the trauma that she's seen and that she's kind of been been party to and and been part of. And uh, it's really just her break uh, between traumatic experiences because we're we're told that she's wanted back in Yemen um, pretty soon for another presumably traumatic and difficult uh, piece of work. And in the meantime, she's just kind of, I think, trying to find some kind of connection again with her humanity, look for some kind of, I think, meaning behind it all in all of these ancient Egyptian tombs and, and sites that she visits. We know that she worked there as a very young woman and sort of spent a summer on a dig with a guy called Sultan, who's played by Karim Salah. And they meet again and sort of rekindle their relationship a little bit. But it's it's not quite a love story. I think it's more of a exploration, I guess, of how you deal with trauma, of how it feels to be, you know, in this kind of, to some extent, alien world that she's in as a Western mm. woman kind of working in the Middle East. And I think uh, it's, as a character piece, it's really good. I mean, as you'd expect, Andrew Riseborough is fantastic. If you recognise her when she turns up in a film, which I don't always uh, no. You know, you you yeah. know, you always know. Oh, this person's going to be really yeah. good because it's Andrea Riseborough. But uh, but yeah, I think the whole cast around her is great. Saleh is great. He was also in her first film, so he's he's obviously reuniting with the director. And I think their chemistry and their kind of relationship just rang true and felt real and felt like meeting mm. an old boyfriend that you didn't maybe quite get over and but you're not quite sure you necessarily want to reconnect with. So I just thought it was really nicely done. But it is essentially a very 
quiet, meditative film about a woman dealing with trauma. So, you know, bear that in mind. If that is something you think you can handle right now, then it is a good version of the genre. Four stars then for Luxor and like about Endlessness that is available on Curzon Home Cinema. So CurzonHomeCinema.com and target number one is available anywhere really that you Mm. can buy films, iTunes, Sky Store, you know know the places, Amazon Prime, you you know the places we're talking about. Uh, So yeah, check those out. Those are this week's movies. Hurrah. And that is it. On that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more barely film-related fun Hmm. when we will be joined by... (gasps) Well, there's the rub, isn't it? (laughs) Because we were going to be joined by Vince Vaughn and Catherine Newton, but no longer because Freaky's gone back. So I think we're going to be joined by MJ Bassett, who is the director of the Megan Fox Lion movie, Rogue. Looking forward to talking to her next week as well. It's going to be a lot of fun and there may be a surprise depending on how I go (laughs) during the next week. So Good luck, Chris. We're all embarking on this odyssey together. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Exciting. Sure. Cool. Exciting times. Anyway, until then, until we meet again, until at a suspicious occasion, it is goodbye from my two colleagues of such lethal cunning, one of whom has bothered with a name this week in Squadcast. It is goodbye to our geek queen, Helen O'Hara, a.k.a. a pigeon sat on a branch. Toodaloo. Or should I say cuckoo? Cuckoo! 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 It is goodbye to a man who looked for inspiration, found none, and just simply called himself James. Goodbye, Chris. Goodbye, James. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't get a goodbye? Oh, fine. No, no goodbyes to you. You're a pigeon, Helen. It'd be weird to speak to, you know. (laughs) Wow. Harsh. avian. Um, Very harsh time. Bye, Helen. Bye. Bye, everybody. And it's goodbye from me, uh, Stinkle Stevenson. I called myself that because I have not had a shower today. So, you know, update your fan fiction accordingly. Ew. Ew. Do you want meat in Sainsbury's? <laughs> not until you've washed. <laughs> <laughs> I could stand up wind. It'll be fine. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.